Chapter Fourteen of the Gentle Grafter by O. Henry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leslie Walden. Chapter Fourteen The Ethics of Pig. On an eastbound train, I went into the smoker and found Jefferson Peters, the only man with a brain west of the Wabash River who can use his cerebrum cerebellum and medulla oblongata at the same time jeff is in the line of un illegal graft he is not to be dreaded by widows and orphans he is a reducer of surplusage his favorite disguise is that of the target bird at which the spendthrift or the reckless investor may shy a few inconsequential dollars he is readily vocalized by tobacco so with the aid of two thick and easy-burning bravas i got the story of his latest autolycan adventure in my line of business said jeff the hardest thing is to find an upright a trustworthy strictly honorable partner to work a graft with some of the best men i ever worked with in a swindle would resort to trickery at times so last summer I thinks I will go over into this section of country where I hear the serpent has not yet entered, and see if I can find a partner naturally gifted with a talent for crime, but not yet contaminated by success. I found a village that seemed to show the right kind of a layout. The inhabitants hadn't found that Adam had been dispossessed, and were going right along naming the animals and killing snakes just as if they were in the Garden of Eden. They called this town Mount Nebo and it's up near the spot where Kentucky and West Virginia and North Carolina come together. Them states don't meet? Well, it was in that neighborhood anyway. After putting in a week proving I wasn't a revenue officer, I went over to the store where the rude four-flushers of the hamlet lied to see if I could get a line on the kind of man I wanted. Gentlemen, says I, after we had rubbed noses and gathered round the dried apple barrel, I don't suppose there's another community in the whole world into which sin and chicanery has less extensively permeated than this. Life here, where all the women are brave and propitious, and all the men honest and expedient, must indeed be an idol. It reminds me, says I, of Goldstein's beautiful ballad entitled The Deserted Village, which says, Ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey what art can drive its charms away the judge rode slowly down the lane mother for i'm to be queen of the may why yes mr peters says the storekeeper i reckon we are about as moral and torpid a community as there be on the mounting according to consensus of opinion but i reckon you ain't never met ruth tatum why no says the town constable he can't hardly have ever that air roof is sure the monstrousest scalawag that has escaped hanging on the galluses and that puts me in mind that i ought to have turned roof out of the lock-up before yesterday the thirty days he got for killing yance goodlow was up then a day or two more won't hurt roof any though shucks now i says in the mountain idiom don't tell me there's a man in mount nebo as bad as that worse says the storekeeper he steals hogs i think i will look up this mr tatum 
So a day or two after the constable turned him out, I got acquainted with him and invited him out to the edge of town to sit on a log and talk business. What I wanted was a partner with a natural rural makeup to play a part in some one-act outrages that I was going to book with the pitfall and gin circuit in some of the western towns. This R. Tatum was born for the role, as sure as nature cast Fairbanks for the stuff that kept Eliza from sinking into the river. He was about the size of a first baseman, and he had ambiguous blue eyes like the china dog on the mantelpiece that Aunt Harriet used to play with when she was a child. His hair waved a little bit like the statue of the Dinkus thrower at the vacation in Rome, but the color of it reminded you of sunset in the Grand Canyon by an American artist that they hang over the stovepipe holes in the salons. He was the rube without needing a touch. You would have known him for one even if you'd seen him on the vaudeville stage with one cotton suspender and a straw over his ear. I told him what I wanted and found him ready to jump at the job. Overlooking such a trivial little peccadillo as the habit of manslaughter, says I, what have you accomplished in the way of indirect brigandage or non-actionable thriftiness that you could point to with or without pride as an evidence of your qualifications for the position? Why, says he, in his kind of southern system of procrastinated accents, ain't you heard tell there ain't any man, black or white, in the Blue Ridge that can tote off a shoat as easy as I can without being heard, seen, or cotched. I can lift a shoat, he goes on, out of a pen, from under a porch, at the trough, in the woods, day or night, anywhere or anyhow, and I guarantee nobody won't hear a squeal. It's all in the way you grab hold of em and carry em atterwards. Some day, goes on this gentle despoiler of pig pens, I hope to become recognized as the champion shoat-stealer of the world. It's proper to be ambitious, says I, and hog-stealing will do very well for Mount Nebo. But in the outside world, Mr. Tatum, it would be considered as crude a piece of business as a bear raid on Bay State gas. However, it will do as a guarantee of good faith. We'll go into partnership. I've got a thousand dollars cash capital, and with that homeward plods atmosphere of yours, we ought to be able to win out a few shares of soon-parted preferred in the money market. So I attach his roof, and we go away from Mount Nebo down into the lowlands, and all the way I coach him for his part in the grafts I had in mind. I had idled away two months on the Florida coast, and was feeling all to the Ponce de Leon, besides having so many new schemes up my sleeve that I had to wear kimonos to hold them. I intended to assume a funnel shape and mow a path nine miles wide through the farming belt of the Middle West, so we headed in that direction. But when we got as far as Lexington, we found Binkley Brothers Circus there, and the blue-grass peasantry romping into town and pounding the Belgian blocks with their hand-pegged sabots as artless and arbitrary as an extra session of a Dato Brian drama. I never pass a circus without pulling the valve cord and coming down for a little Key West money. So I engaged a couple of rooms and board for Roof and me at a house near the circus grounds, run by a widow named Peavy. Then I took Roof to a clothing store and gents outfitted him. 
he showed up strong as i knew he would after he was rigged up in the ready-made rutabaga regalia me and old miss fitzky stuffed him into a bright blue suit with a nile green visible plaid effect and riveted on a fancy vest of a light tuskegee normal tan color a red necktie and the yellowest pair of shoes in town they were the first clothes Roof had ever worn except the gingham layette and the butternut top-dressing of his native corral, and he looked as self-conscious as an igorote with a new nose-ring. That night I went down to the circus tents and opened a small shell game. Roof was to be the capper. I gave him a roll of phony currency to bet with, and kept a bunch of it in a special pocket to pay his winnings out of. No, I didn't mistrust him but I simply can't manipulate the ball to lose when I see real money bet. My fingers go on strike every time I try it. I set up my little table and begin to show them how easy it was to guess which shell the little pea was under. The unlettered hinds gathered in a thick semicircle and began to nudge elbows and banter one another to bet. Then was when Rube ought to have single-footed up and called the turn on the little joker for a few tens and fives to get them started but no roof. I had seen him two or three times walking about and looking at the sideshow pictures with his mouth full of peanut candy, but he never came nigh. The crowd piked a little, but trying to work the shells without a capper is like fishing without bait. I closed the game with only forty-two dollars of unearned increment, while I had been counting on yanking the yeoman for two hundred at least. I went home at eleven and went to bed. I suppose that the circus had proved too alluring for Roof, and that he had succumbed to it, concert and all, but I meant to give him a lecture on general business principles in the morning. Just after Morpheus had got both my shoulders to the shuck mattress, I hears a houseful of unbecoming and ribald noises like a youngster screeching with green apple colic. I opens my door and calls out in the hall for the widow lady, and when she sticks her head out, I says, Miss Peavy, ma'am, would you mind choking off that kid of yours so that honest people can get their rest? Sir, says she, it's no child of mine. It's the pig squealing that your Mr. Tatum brought home to his room a couple of hours ago. And if you are uncle or cousin or brother to it, I'd appreciate your stopping its mouth, sir, if you please. I put on some of the polite outside habiliments of external society and went into Roof's room. He had gotten up and lit his lamp and was pouring some milk into a tin pan on the floor for a dingy white half-grown squealing pig. How is this, Roof? says I. You flim-flammed in your part of the work tonight and put the game on crutches. And how do you explain the pig? It looks like backsliding to me. Now don't be too hard on me, Jeff, says he. You know how long I've been used to stealing shoats. It's got to be a habit with me. And tonight, when I see such a fine chance, I couldn't help taking it. Well, says I, maybe you've really got kleptopigia. And maybe when we get out of this pig belt, you'll turn your mind to higher and more remunerative misconduct. Why you should want to stain your soul with such a distasteful, feeble-minded, perverted, roaring beast as that, I can't understand. Why, Jeff, says he, you ain't in sympathy with Schultz. You don't understand em like I do. 
This here seems to be an animal of more than common powers of ration and intelligence. He walked half across the room on his hind legs a while ago. Well, I'm going back to bed, says I. See if you can impress it upon your friend's ideas of intelligence that he's not to make so much noise. He was hungry, says Roof. He'll go to sleep and keep quiet now. I always get up before breakfast and read the morning paper when I happen to be within the radius of a hose cylinder or a Washington hand press. The next morning I got up early and found a Lexington daily on the front porch where the carrier had thrown it. The first thing I saw in it was a double column ad on the front page that read like this, $5,000 reward. The above amount will be paid and no questions asked for the return, alive and uninjured, of Beppo, the famous European educated pig that strayed or was stolen from the sideshow tents of Binkley Brothers Circus last night. George B. Tapley, business manager, at the circus grounds. I folded the paper flat, put it into my inside pocket, and went to Roof's room. He was nearly dressed and was feeding the pig the rest of the milk and some apple peelings. Well, 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 good morning all, I says, hearty and amiable. So we are up and Piggy is having his breakfast. What had you intended doing with that pig, Roof? I'm going to crate him up, says Roof, and express him to Ma in Mount Nebo. He'll be company for her while I'm away. He's a mighty fine pig, says I, scratching him on the back. You called him a lot of names last night, says Roof. Oh, well, says I, he looks better to me this morning. I was raised on a farm, and I'm very fond of pigs. I used to go to bed at sundown, so I never saw one by lamplight before. Tell you what I'll do, Roof, says I. I'll give you ten dollars for that pig. I reckon I wouldn't sell this shoat, says he. If it was any other one, I might. Why not this one, I asked, fearful that he might know something. Why, because, says he, it was the grandest achievement of my life. There ain't ary other man that could have done it. If I ever have a fireside and children, I'll sit beside it and tell them how their daddy toted off a shoat from a whole circus full of people, and maybe my grandchildren, too. They'll certainly be proud a whole passel. Why, says he, there was two tents, one opening into the other. This shoat was on a platform tied with a little chain. I seen a giant and a lady with a fine chance of bushy white hair in the other tent. I got the shoat and crawled out from under the canvas again, without him squeaking as loud as a mouse. I put him under my coat, and I must have passed a hundred folks before I got out where the streets was dark. I reckon I wouldn't sell that shoat, Jeff. I'd want my ma to keep it, so there'd be a witness to what I'd done. The pig won't live long enough, I says, to use as an exhibit in your senile fireside mendacity. Your children will have to take your word for it. I'll give you one hundred dollars for the animal. Roof looked at me, astonished. The shoat can't be worth anything like that to you, he says. What do you want him for? Viewing me casuistically, says I, with a rare smile, you wouldn't think I've got an artistic side to my temper but I have. I am a collector of pigs. 
I've scored the world for unusual pigs. Over in the Wabash Valley, I've got a hog ranch with most every specimen on it, from a merino to a Poland china. This looks like a blooded pig to me, Roof, says I, and I believe it's a genuine Berkshire. That's why I'd like to have it. I'd sure like to accommodate you, says he, but I've got the artistic tenement, too. I don't see why it ain't art when you can steal a shoat better than anybody else can. Shoats is a kind of inspiration and genius with me. Especially this one. I wouldn't take two hundred and fifty for that animal. Now listen, says I, wiping off my forehead. It's not so much a matter of business with me as it is art and not so much art as it is philanthropy. Being a connoisseur and disseminator of pigs, I wouldn't feel like I'd done my duty to the world unless I added that Berkshire to my collection. Not intrinsically, but according to the ethics of pigs as friends and coagitators of mankind. I offer you five hundred dollars for the animal. Jeff, says this pork esthete, it ain't money, it's sentiment with me. Seven hundred, says I. Make it eight hundred, says Roof, and I'll crush the sentiment out of my heart. I went under my clothes from my money belt and counted him out forty twenty-dollar gold certificates. I'll just take him into my own room, says I, and lock him up till after breakfast. I took the pig by the hind leg. He turned on a squeal like a steam calliope at the circus. Let me tote him for you, says Roof, and he picks up the beast under one arm, holding his snout with the other hand, and packs him into my room like a sleeping baby. After breakfast, Roof, who had a chronic case of haberdashery ever since I got his trousseau, says he believes he will amble down to Miss Fitzky's and look over some royal purple socks. And then I got as busy as a one-armed man with nettle rash pasting on wallpaper. I found an old negro man with an express wagon to hire, and we tied the pig in a sack and drove down to the circus grounds. I found George B. Tapley in a little tent with a window flap open. He was a fattish man with an immediate eye in a black skull cap with a four-ounce diamond screwed into the bosom of his red sweater. Are you George B. Tapley, I asks? I swear it, says he. Well, I've got it, says I. Designate, says he, are you the guinea pigs for the Asiatic python, or the alfalfa for the sacred buffalo? Neither, says I. I've got Beppo, the educated pig, in a sack in that wagon. I found him rooting up the flowers in my front yard this morning. I'll take the five thousand dollars in large bills, if it's handy. George B. hustles out of his tent and asks me to follow. We went in to one of the side shows. In there was a jet-black pig with a pink ribbon around his neck, lying on some hay and eating carrots that a man was feeding to him. Hey, Mac, calls G.B. Nothing wrong with the world wide this morning, is there? Him? No, says the man. He's got an appetite like a chorus girl at 1 a.m. How'd you get this pipe? asks Tapley to me. Eating too many pork chops last night? I pulls out the paper and shows him the ad. Fake, says he. Don't know anything about it. You've beheld with your own eyes the marvelous worldwide porcine wonder of the four-footed kingdom eating with preternatural sagacity his matutinal meal. 
unstrayed and unstole. Good morning. I was beginning to see. I got in the wagon and told Uncle Ned to drive to the most adjacent orifice of the nearest alley. There I took out my pig, got the range carefully for the other opening, set his sights, and gave him such a kick that he went out by the other end of the alley, twenty feet ahead of his squeal. Then I paid Uncle Ned his fifty cents and walked down to the newspaper office. I wanted to hear it in cold syllables. I got the advertising man to his window. To decide a bet, says I, wasn't the man who had this ad put in last night short and fat with long black whiskers and a club foot? He was not, says the man. He would measure about six feet by four and a half inches with silk hair and dressed like the pansies of the conservatory. At dinner time I went back to Mrs. Peavy's. "'Shall I keep some soup hot for Mr. Tatum till he comes back?' she asks. "'If you do, ma'am,' says I, "'you'll more than exhaust for firewood all the coal in the bosom of the earth and all the forests on the outside of it. So you see there,' said Jeff Peters in conclusion, "'how hard it is ever to find a fair-minded and honest business partner.' "'But,' I began with the freedom of long acquaintance, the rule should work both ways. If you had offered to divide the reward, you would not have lost. Jeff's look of dignified reproach stopped me. That don't involve the same principles at all, said he. Mine was a legitimate and moral attempt at speculation. Buy low and sell high. Don't Wall Street endorse it? Bulls and bears and pigs, what's the difference? Why not bristles as well as horns and fur? End of chapter 14, The Ethics of Pig Recording by Leslie Walden End of The Gentle Grafter by O. Henry